On April 27, 1968, the crew of the USS Scorpion hosted a farewell party aboard their state-of-the-art submarine, hoping to make the most out of their last night in the Mediterranean. A polka band played beside the vessel's nukes while the sweaty crew hit on the Italian women who'd come aboard for the party. Others on the sub had already headed into town, hoping to enjoy a beer on land before setting sail in the morning. The next day, naval officers did a head count to ensure everyone was on board. Then, Commander Francis Slattery gave the order to lift the anchor and set sail. The submarine's enormous propeller churned the water behind it, launching the Scorpion forward toward the Atlantic. Slattery took one last look at Italy through the periscope, then returned to his station. It was the last time he'd ever see land. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the disappearance of the USS Scorpion, an American nuclear-powered submarine that went missing in May 1968. Today, we'll follow the Scorpion's journey from its creation to its ultimate demise in the waters of the Atlantic. Then, we'll look at the massive search that followed and the Navy's official story about what happened. Next time, we'll dig into three theories about what happened to the USS Scorpion. First, we'll look at whether the nuclear submarine was destroyed by an alien watercraft. Or perhaps the Soviets sunk the vessel and the Navy covered up its embarrassing loss. And finally, we'll examine whether the ship's demise was due to a simple malfunction in the machinery. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened. I'm okay. Other people have it worse. It doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot conspiracy. 
there's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. If you're interested in crazy stories from the wild world of organized crime, scams, gangs, cartels, mafias, drug dealers, and everything fun like that, have we got a podcast for you. The Underworld Podcast is hosted by two conflict journalists, Danny Gold and Sean Williams, who have reported on all sorts of dangerous people in dangerous places. Every week, they bring you a new episode on international organized crime from a new corner of the globe. You can find the Underworld podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. When you're 500 feet below the waves, everything feels dangerous. In the small, stale space of a military submarine, latches, knobs, and yards of reinforced steel surround you. If claustrophobia sets in, mentally, you may start to play out the worst-case scenarios, like what would happen if you opened a hatch and let the hundreds of tons of water rush into the ship. In that scenario, you wouldn't even have time to drown. The water would instantly crush you to death. There's not much to do in a submarine besides work. Your mind tends to wander, so you might think about how there's really only a few inches of reinforced steel keeping the ocean from swallowing you whole. It's terrifying, but that scenario's likely not even the worst of it. Because somewhere in the dark, frigid depths, there are predators on the hunt. Enemy submarines silently swimming stalking their prey, armed with explosive torpedoes that could rip you apart in an instant. Even with all these dangers, submarine warfare has been a major part of international naval strategy since World War I. In their early days, subs were more dangerous. Dozens of mechanical systems had to work exactly right, or the sub would sink and everyone on board would perish. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, submarines became more technologically sound and the risk of machinery malfunctions diminished. Helpful as this was, this didn't mean they were completely safe by today's standards. Sailors still breathed toxic diesel fumes from the engine every time they surfaced for fuel, putting their health at risk. The advent of atomic energy changed all of those risks, though. Nuclear power allowed the U.S. and Soviet navies to replace their noisy, dirty diesel engines with miniature, quiet, and relatively safe nuclear reactors. And because submarines no longer had to refuel every couple of days, they could stay underwater longer, ushering in a new era in naval warfare. Subs could stalk predators for weeks without anyone noticing. In 1960, the American military commissioned the USS Scorpion. It was among a class of nuclear-powered subs called the Skipjacks, 
One officer described them as the sports cars of the undersea world, meaning fast, agile, and heavily armed. In the first year, the Scorpion proved itself as a capable military vessel. In August 1960, the Navy sent the Scorpion to join a NATO exercise and conduct a mock battle with a submarine destroyer. When the time came, the captain hit the gas at full speed. It felt like being strapped to a rocket. The craft bowled a 180-degree turn so fast, one sailor was literally thrown across the room. The Scorpion was the quickest, baddest submersible on the planet. Back on base, sailors fawned over these new submarines. The sailors aboard were the cool kids in the barracks. Their lives at port were easy and carefree. But aboard their vessel, they meant business. So when Bill Elrod was assigned to the vessel in 1964, it was a dream come true. Now a sonarman in the Navy, Elrod had wanted to be on a sub ever since he joined the Navy. When he finally boarded the Scorpion, Elrod was ecstatic. He followed a tangled forest of cables and pipes to the sonar shack he'd be working in for the foreseeable future. Yet for all its glory, it quickly became clear that the sub wasn't like he'd imagined at all. For sleeping, he'd share a 9x12 room with two other roommates. And wherever he went, Elrod felt the curved walls closing around him. When another sailor approached, he had to flatten himself to let them squeeze by. Every available inch of space was taken. Life on the submarine wasn't anything like the movies. It wasn't action-packed. There were no special ops missions. And Elrod spent most of his days doing chores and looking at the sonar radar. The close quarters made it feel like a prison. His crewmates reassured him that it wasn't nearly as bad as some of the other subs they'd been on. They reminded him that there was air conditioning and the food was decent. And they were on the Scorpion, the Navy's newest, shiniest machine. Something was bound to change. They were right. Eventually, Elrod got used to the cramped quarters and way of life on the sub. And in September 1965, the young sonarman finally got the opportunity to see some action. That month, the Scorpion received special orders to report to duty immediately. When Elrod arrived at the pier, he saw men from the National Security Agency unpacking boxes of specialized surveillance gear. Soon after, they took over a section of the submarine without saying a word to the crew. A few hours later, the Scorpion crew left their home base in Norfolk, Virginia. They traveled 4,200 miles without coming up for air before finally stopping in the Barents Sea, where the Soviet Union's northern fleet was stationed. Many of the Soviet Union's submarines and naval ships surrounded the Scorpion. It was exactly what the NSA agents had hoped for. The team planned to eavesdrop on the Soviets' communication. If they could go undetected, they stood to gain valuable intel about Russian military movements. But if the Soviets got wind that Americans were lurking in these waters, the whole crew could end up in a Soviet prison. Or worse, at the bottom of the ocean. It was risky, but the payoff was high. 
Helrod thought about this as he listened to the sounds of his enemies nearby. He spent most of his days sitting in front of the radar, scrutinizing the transmissions for inconsistencies. Every time a Soviet ship moved, its propellers made a distinctive noise. He could tell each boat's make and model just from the chop of their engines. So mundane as it seemed, his most important responsibility was to simply look, listen, and report back anything out of the ordinary. On October 13th, he alerted his commander of a Soviet submarine in their area. And so, Elrod's commander ordered the Scorpion to silently maneuver underneath their opponent to take a few pictures. But as the sub edged closer to the enemy, the Soviet vessel dived straight down. With a crunch, the Soviet submarine crashed into the Scorpion's dorsal fin-shaped sail. The Scorpion dragged across the Soviet vessel's belly. The other sub's propellers carved gashes in the sail, chopping up the steel like minced meat. After an agonizing few seconds, the Scorpion skidded by into the clear. The Scorpion's commander ordered his crew to race at full speed back to Norfolk, Virginia, over 4,000 miles away. They made it out safely, but it was a close call. And it wasn't the only one. In 1966, the crew got close enough to film an experimental missile launch. According to some former crew members, a Soviet destroyer actually fired a torpedo at them, and they had to sprint to outrun it. All that adventure took a toll on the Scorpion. The ship was plagued by mechanical errors. One time, a break in the hydraulic system created a massive oil leak. In another, it suffered a rudder failure, and for a few moments, the commander lost control of the steering wheel. To top all this off, the biggest and most daunting challenge was refueling. Swapping out nuclear fuel isn't like refilling a car. And though refuels were only supposed to happen every few years, it was a big operation. Highly skilled technicians had to cut a hole in the submarine and remove the spent core. Then, they had to install a new core, build a protective shield around it, and seal the vessel up. It was an extremely delicate and dangerous job. There were very few people in the world who knew how to do it. This was something the crew of the Scorpion realized in February 1967, when they pulled into Norfolk for a refuel, only to learn that the people assigned to replace the core at the shipyard had only done it once before. Perhaps as a result, the reactor and other parts of the Scorpion suffered from mechanical glitches. The Scorpion languished at the dock for nearly seven months, and even then, it wasn't necessarily ready for battle. Though there were still concerns about certain components after extensive testing, the sub seemed reliable enough for its next adventure. So in October 1967, the Navy gave the Scorpion a clean bill of health and the vessel set sail. This time with a new skipper at the helm, Commander Francis Slattery, a decorated officer with experience on nuclear-powered submarines was now guiding the sub. Much to Slattery's dismay, the refurbished ship was still a problem. 
Over the next few months, the crew reported a number of alarming incidents. First, there was a strange vibration in the hull that no one could trace. Next came the oil leaks, and then a near-fatal catastrophe. In December of 1968, Slattery was off the coast of Virginia, testing his ship's weapons. The Scorpion had three different kinds of torpedoes. The first two contained high explosives, and the third carried a nuclear warhead big enough to blow up an enemy submarine. During the test, the sailors had to fire all three variants to ensure the systems worked properly. The torpedoes were supposed to launch, travel to a designated distance, then surface so the Navy could collect them. So on December 4th, the sailors loaded a torpedo into a launch tube and tried to fire it. When nothing happened, they assumed it was a dud and moved to their next task. But moments later, they heard a whirring sound coming from inside the tube. The weapon's battery was still active, heating to dangerous levels and producing large amounts of explosive hydrogen gas. One spark and the whole submarine might explode. Coming up, the Scorpion's final sail. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa from the ParCast series Mythology. Every Tuesday, join me on a wondrous journey back in time, exploring the most epic battles, sweeping love stories, and harrowing adventures ever told. Heroes, gods, monsters, mayhem. This podcast has it all. From the Knights of the Round Table and Hori the Hunter to Paradise Lost and the Lost City of Atlantis. Each episode of Mythology dramatizes history's greatest stories, bringing their origins to life and giving insight into how our ancestors saw the universe. Ancient myths, modern twists. Catch new episodes of Mythology every Tuesday and binge the classics anytime. Listen free only on Spotify. And now back to the story. Even though the Scorpion was back on patrol in December 1966, it certainly wasn't the end of the sub's mechanical problems. An out-of-control torpedo was spinning up within its housing capsule, generating pounds of explosive hydrogen gas. Thinking quickly, one of the officers opened the hatch to let the torpedo out. It eventually sank to the ocean floor, but the event worried the ship's command. They'd almost imploded the ship, just doing a simple test exercise. When they returned to port on February 5th, 1968, the crew were exhausted. They'd been aboard an ailing submarine for months and needed a break from the tiny quarters of the USS Scorpion. Their relief wouldn't last long. Another U.S. nuclear sub stationed in the Mediterranean was dealing with mechanical errors and the military needed a crew and vessel to take its place. So, to their surprise, Slattery and his men were redeployed on the Scorpion. On the morning of February 15th, Barbara Foley drove her husband Vernon to the pier. She fumed with rage at how demanding his career was. The Navy had given her only a few weeks with her husband since Thanksgiving, and their baby daughter was growing up fast. 
Now he'd be gone for another three months. When he hugged her goodbye, she didn't want to let go. She wasn't alone. Sonerman Bob Davis spent the night with his girlfriend, and that morning she awoke with a fright. She told him she suddenly had a feeling that something awful was about to happen and begged him not to go. Despite her concern, Davis didn't seem as worried. If anything, he was annoyed and tired to be going back to work already, but he promised he'd see her again in a few months. Yet she remained so convinced something terrible would happen that she hid his car keys so he wouldn't be able to get to the dock. After ransacking the house in search of the keys, he stormed out for port. He wasn't quick enough, though. By the time Davis arrived, the Scorpion had already set sail without him. On board, Commander Francis Slattery readied the Scorpion for action, though it proved to be of little use. During their two-week, 4,000-mile journey across the Atlantic, they dealt with more and more maintenance problems. The Scorpion's max depth was 500 feet. Of course, the ocean is much deeper than that. But if a sub dips below its max depth, the pressure from the ocean can crush it instantly. In early February 1968, the ship's steering suddenly failed. The Scorpion took a nosedive, lurching toward that lethal, invisible line. Thankfully, in the nick of time, the submarine recovered and everyone aboard was out of harm's way. They'd survived, but barely. By the time the crew arrived at the U.S. naval base in Rota, Spain, everyone's nerves were frayed. They were only two weeks into their three-month deployment and had already faced death. The Scorpion stayed at port for five days, while repair technicians fixed a hydraulic leak and other issues. It's hard to know the exact details about the next leg of the ship's journey toward Italy, but we do know that the crew stopped near Gibraltar for a mission that's still highly classified. And according to the book, All Hands Down by Kenneth Sewell, it was during this time that they took on a mysterious passenger named Tony Marquez. Tony was supposedly an expert in the underwater acoustics network called the Sound Surveillance System, or SOSIS. The system was a collection of special microphones that recorded ocean sounds 24-7 around the world. Analysts then listened to these recordings to track ship movements. Few knew what Tony was doing aboard their ship, but everyone trusted that he was working on something top secret. And by March 1968, the Scorpion finally arrived in Italy. Once there, they were met with suspicion by local officials who took issue with the Americans parking a nuclear reactor in their waters. This would be the first time for a nuclear sub to settle up to Italian shores. They demanded Commander Slattery to anchor the Scorpion far away from the dock, just in case something bad happened. The crew bristled at this, but they obeyed and anchored the vessel a boat's ride from the shore. They made a few different stops in Italy. At some, they ran drills and rehearsed military movements. Slattery also tried to keep them occupied with chores, like repainting the sub's rusted interior. At other stops, the crew paid Italian boat owners to ferry them to port. They mailed letters home and drank with the locals, While it wasn't the worst way to pass time, 
it certainly wasn't home either. Still, incidents seemed to be piling up and piling on to the sour mood. A mishap in April sank a barge and an electrical fire nearly killed a sailor. Slattery was frustrated but kept these troubles to himself. So when the Navy inspected the submarine in mid-April and gave the ship a clean bill of health, Slattery told the men to get ready. The USS Scorpion was going home. On April 27, 1968, Commander Slattery hosted a going-away party, if only to lift his men's spirits for the long trek home. The next morning, his crew completed one more military exercise and then headed west. Slattery expected to return to Norfolk by May 23rd. However, upon learning that Sonerman Bill Elrod's wife had lost their baby during childbirth, he redirected the Scorpion to Spain to drop Elrod off so he could get back to the States quicker. During this detour, the Navy saw an opportunity to call in with one last secret mission. At the time, the Soviet military had a makeshift naval base in the middle of the Atlantic, which the Scorpion would pass nearby on its return voyage. The U.S. wanted the Scorpion to obtain as much information about this base as they could. Spying on a heavily armed Soviet fleet was a dangerous operation. The Soviets would be able to pick up any radio broadcast and use it to pinpoint the Scorpion's location. So Slattery ordered his ship to be as stealthy as possible when they passed the Soviet vessel. It seemed like the plan worked, because at 11 p.m. on May 21st, the Scorpion emerged from radio silence and Slattery contacted a naval base. The transmission was garbled, but he managed to signal his exact location near the Azores Islands of the Mid-Atlantic. He told the Navy he expected to be in Norfolk by Monday, May 27th. Back in Virginia, Barbara Foley was on her last nerve, torn with worry. She called the Navy's ship arrivals hotline frequently to learn when her husband would come home. And each time, the mechanical voice told her a different date. On the morning of May 27th, the automated message told her that the Scorpion was due that afternoon at one o'clock. She exhaled. Finally, she thought, Vernon's coming home. The wind outside her home was ferocious. Rain came down in sheets, but Barbara wanted to be there to welcome her husband home, so she threw on a raincoat and drove to Pier 22, where she dropped Vernon three months earlier. When she arrived, several others were already there. Some of the women had brought their children. The group tried to make small talk, but the howling storm made that impossible, so they simply stood and waited. 1 p.m. came and went. Barbara tried not to let it bother her. Ships were late all the time. As the hours ticked by, though, it became harder and harder to ignore the worry in her gut. The women asked around if any Navy men knew what was up. No one did. Meanwhile, back at Navy headquarters, the scene was far less calm. Officers were panicking to locate the Scorpion. The submarine wasn't running a few hours late. It had disappeared. Coming up, the race to find the missing submarine. And now, back to the story. 
On May 22, 1968, the USS Scorpion sent its last communication in the early hours of the morning. Then, the sub vanished. Few civilians knew, least of all those close to the crew. By 1 p.m. on May 27th, wives, girlfriends, and children waited by the pier in Norfolk, Virginia for their loved ones to return. The skies had opened up and rain poured onto them, but they were still full of excitement and anticipation. They didn't realize that the authorities already knew the boat wasn't coming. Two hours earlier, Captain James Bella, the acting squadron commander, noted that the Scorpion had failed its scheduled check-in via radio. This was unusual, but at first he chalked it up to interference from the storm. At 12.40 p.m., he called the submarine warfare headquarters to ask if Commander Slattery was using another channel. He wasn't. By 3.15, the Navy couldn't trace the Scorpion at all and declared it missing in action. Every submarine across the world was ordered to surface and await further instructions. Later that afternoon, some of the family members met with Bella hoping to get some more concrete answers, but apparently he had none to give. While we don't know exactly what their conversations were, it seemed like he wasn't able to quell their rising panic. That sense of panic was filtering up into the upper echelons of the Navy, too. When Vice Admiral Arnold Shade, the commander of all Atlantic submarines, heard the news, he rushed to Norfolk. Shade was no stranger to the hazards of submarines. He'd spent his whole career around them. During World War II, he was the second in command aboard a diesel-powered sub. And Shade had been involved in deploying it to the Mediterranean, it's possible the Scorpion's last secret mission was at his directive. He felt a duty to bring the crew home safe. Shade ordered dozens of American ships on the eastern seaboard to drop what they were doing and search the Atlantic for the Scorpion. He dispatched a fleet of long-range patrol aircrafts to retrace the Scorpion's path, which spread across the east coast of the U.S. to Bermuda and the Azores. As many ships as the Navy could deploy were being fueled up and sent to join the search party. Despite these great efforts, it had been days since anyone had heard from the Scorpion. And with each passing minute, the likelihood of finding the crew alive diminished. Shade knew it, and so did everyone else. Barbara thought she might have to white-knuckle it through the night without any updates, Vernon was supposed to be back earlier that day, and she'd only received vague explanations from the military about his return. But early that evening, she woke from a nap to neighbors knocking on her door to ask if she was okay. Word of the missing sub spread quickly among sailors and made it onto the 6 p.m. news. And by the next morning, the New York Times ran a front-page article about the missing submarine. This came as a shock to many of the crew's families, some of whom hadn't seen the broadcast the night before. Bill Elrod, who'd left the Scorpion less than a week prior, was still mourning the loss of his son when he found out his ship was missing, not delayed. He was outraged that no one from the Navy bothered to call him. Instead, he'd learned about it from the local CBS News affiliate. 
While its communication blunders were inexcusable, the Navy was apparently funneling all of its resources into finding the vessel. And they had a secret weapon, Dr. John Craven. Craven was a civilian scientist whose expertise focused on recovering top-secret objects from the seafloor. He'd once found an atomic bomb the Air Force had misplaced off the coast of Spain. If anyone could locate a lost sub, it was Craven. His team worked through the night, reaching out to various intelligence sources and asking for acoustic recordings from hydrophones hidden in the ocean. Remember, a skilled sonarman like Bill Elrod could tell exactly what kind of ship was nearby based on the sounds of its propeller. Similarly, Dr. Craven wanted to use that kind of expertise to listen for signs of the scorpion. Soon, he learned about a research station in the Canary Islands that had recordings from the week of May 20th. It was about a thousand miles away from where the scorpion was last heard from, but it was his best shot at finding out what happened. He and his team listened to hours of recordings and sifted through a mountain of extraneous noise. Finally, they heard something that stood out, an explosion from May 22nd, hours after the scorpion's last signal. Then they heard another boom and another. One after another, explosions rang out over the recording. The recording gave Craven some idea of the scorpion's general location, but he needed more data if he wanted to find the actual wreck. His team soon discovered another recording from a hydrophone off the coast of Newfoundland that captured the same explosions. This allowed them to calculate an approximate position of the submarine. It was still a huge area to cover, but fortunately, the Navy had a state-of-the-art research vessel equipped with a large camera sled. It could canvas the ocean floor, taking pictures quickly. At the time, the USNS Mizar was one of the most cutting-edge research ships in America's arsenal, and the best hope for finding the Scorpion. As long as its crew knew where to look. But even with an approximate location from Craven's team, they were still looking for a needle in a haystack. They would stalk the waters of the Atlantic Ocean for months. Though the Mizar recovered tons of trash and debris from the ocean, they couldn't find any sign of the missing nuclear submarine. By this point, the Navy had to assume the crew was gone. Still, they had a responsibility to find the ship, not only to recover the nukes sitting at the bottom of the ocean, but also to return the bodies of these men to their families. Finally, on October 28, 1968, the Mizar's sensors picked up something on the ocean floor. The Mizar scientists huddled over the image, trying to make it clearer. Then they saw it. Bits of debris, a large cigar-shaped vessel at the bottom of the ocean. The front of the USS Scorpion was still mostly intact. However, the rear section had collapsed inwards, it looked like the vessel had imploded on itself, perhaps due to pressure from the water. The Navy announced the discovery to the world two days later on October 30th, then reconvened the special court of inquiry that first investigated the sub's disappearance, now to determine the cause of its demise. 
They interviewed 90 witnesses and experts and examined hundreds of photographs taken of the wreck. On January 31, 1969, three months after finding the scorpion, they announced their conclusions. Or rather, they announced their lack thereof. According to the Navy, despite all the evidence, they had no idea what sank the scorpion. While they had various theories, none of them could neatly explain what caused the sub to implode. They claimed that they were able to eliminate some scenarios, like that something had gone wrong with the nuclear reactor. They said that there was also no evidence of foul play. Whatever made the sub dip down wasn't clear, and may never be. Of course, not everyone believed that story. Namely, many of those who had worked around the sub or had loved ones on board. And they had good reason not to accept the Navy's official conclusions. Because during the search, the Navy consistently withheld information about the Scorpion from the public and the relatives of the deceased. They kept the findings of fact report classified for more than 20 years. Even when it was finally released in 1993, the document was somewhat redacted. But thanks to the work of some investigative journalists and naval experts, the truth about what they're hiding may finally come to light. Next time, we'll investigate three conspiracy theories about what may have happened to the USS Scorpion. We'll look at a more unconventional possibility, like whether an alien submarine destroyed the Scorpion, and whether unidentified water objects haunt the seas today. Then, we'll explore the idea that the Soviet Union deliberately sank the Scorpion. And finally, we'll discuss whether the ship's faulty machinery led to its demise. The ocean is a vast and unforgiving place. It's a world where everything is prey for something else. One wrong move, and even big fish, like sharks or nuclear submarines, can become somebody's dinner. With a mystery this big, anything is possible. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. For more information on the USS Scorpion, amongst the many sources we used, we found Silent Steel by Stephen Johnson and Scorpion Down by Ed Offley to be extremely helpful to our research. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember... The truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Conspiracy Theories is written by Xander Bernstein, edited by Amber Hurley and Mackenzie Moore, fact-checked by Claire Cronin, researched by Bradley Klein, and produced by Bruce Katovich. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. <laughs>